0: There will be no new normal. There will be evolving risk. We're not going backwards on climate change. Climate change has happened, is happening and will continue to happen. And the severity of of events will be increasingly challenging going forward.
1: Welcome to Sustainability Leaders. I'm Michael Torrance, Chief Sustainability Officer with BMO Financial Group. On this show, We will talk with leading sustainability practitioners from the corporate, investor, academic, and NGO communities to explore how this rapidly evolving field of sustainability is impacting global investment, business practices, and our world.
0: The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of Bank of Montreal, its affiliates, or subsidiaries.
2: Hi. I'm George Sutherland, Climate Change and Sustainability Advisor in the Bank of Montreal's Climate Institute. I'll be hosting a series of episodes doing a deep dive into the different physical risks of climate change, covering topics such as flooding, permafrost thaw, wildfire, extreme heat, and more, and speaking with leading experts to unpack what each of these climate risks mean to our environmental, social, and economic systems. The first topic that we'll be discussing in this series is flooding. The sixth assessment report by the United Nations Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which was released earlier this summer, concluded with unprecedented accuracy that our climate is changing faster than previously thought and that human emissions of greenhouse gases are driving this change. Global temperatures have increased 1.1 degrees Celsius since the pre-industrial era, with regional warming being experienced up to three times this rate. This warming has caused pronounced shifts in the frequency and severity of weather, such as intense storms and rainfall. And when paired with rising sea levels, this translates to more frequent and severe flooding, which is not only an environmental issue, but a pressing economic and humanitarian issue as well. This was further punctuated by another report released by the World Meteorological Organization earlier this fall, which concluded that disasters attributed to weather, climate, and water related hazards are estimated to have tragically accounted for more than 2 million deaths and economic losses of more than 3.6 trillion US dollars since 1970, of which flooding is estimated to have cost $115 billion US dollars globally. And what's more, the rate of these economic losses is accelerating, with the cost of these natural disasters having increased sevenfold over the past 50 years. It is clear that the physical impacts of climate change pose material risk to our financial and social systems, and flooding is chief among these impacts given global trends in population growth, urbanization, and settlement in areas which are increasingly exposed to flooding in a warmer climate. To unpack the topic of flooding in greater detail, I'm joined by Dr. Blair Feltmate, Professor and Head of the Intact Centre on Climate Adaptation at the University of Waterloo and one of Canada's leading experts in flood adaptation. Among a long list of accomplishments, he is also a member of the Global Risk Institute's Sustainable Finance Advisory Council, chair of the Adaptation Committee to the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices, and was chair of the Government of Canada's Expert Panel on Climate Adaptation and Resilience Results. Thank you, Blair, for joining me to discuss this topic. Well, thank you very much for having me. To start with, can you unpack the science of how a changing climate is impacting flooding?
0: Over the period of the last 100 to 120 years or so, driven through the burning of of fossil fuels, temperature on the planet is up about 1.1 to 1.2 degrees Celsius. So warmer today than occurred pre-industrial time. So what does that mean relative to flooding or precipitation events? Two points in particular. One, that warmer air, the energy that's in that warmer air When storms occur, major precipitation events occur, they happen with a greater degree of veracity, if you will. There's more energy in the storms. That that heat didn't disappear. It's still there. So it it comes out of the system when storm events occur, number one. And number two, for every one degree Celsius increase in temperature, the air holds about 7% more moisture. And the two in combination
2: create a deadly output for affecting flooding. Thanks, Blair. And in terms of how that translates to flooding, what are the different types of flooding and how do they result in different impacts to our systems?
0: Yeah, so it, uh, flooding more or less falls into three categories. One is riverine flooding. In other words, large volumes of water come down, and they fill the river systems to the point that it, it creates overflow. The water spills over the banks and often into, you know perhaps at the local level or down to the individual house level, Then we can also have intense storm events whereby water may enter into a city region. This is called urban flooding, and it can overwhelm, amongst other things, sewer systems. The water can actually channel into the sewer systems. And when you have systems, particularly in older cities, with combined storm and sanitary sewer systems, that water can surge through those systems and ultimately up into people's basements through the little drain in the basement that's normally there to take water away. And then the third component is coastal flooding. So through a combination of storm surge, king tides, which are the highest tides in a season, and sea level rise, those three in combination create flooding along coastal zones, and particularly on Canada's Atlantic and Pacific coasts. And coastal flooding is particularly problematic and will be more so going forward in Nova Scotia, PEI, Newfoundland, Labrador, New Brunswick regions. It's not just the amount of water that comes down, it's the intensity with which it comes down. So when people who are a little bit older, they may have the perception that Gee, the the storms that are occurring today, they seem more intense than when I was a, a, a child, assuming this person is 60 or 70 years old. That general perception they have is borne out in reality in the data. These storms actually are more
2: intense. Thanks, Blair. I think that's an important point as well regarding the storm intensity and ties well back into the first question that we discussed, where warmer atmospheres hold more energy. And as a result, more water is delivered in these intense rainfall events. That reminds me of another study from the World Meteorological Organization released earlier this summer, which concluded that extreme rainfall events, such as the storms which caused July's devastating flooding in Western Europe, were found to be up to nine times more likely to occur in this warmer climate that we're experiencing.
0: Yeah, for sure. Water is the culprit that you see in in terms of expression of extreme weather due to climate change. Water is the culprit that shows up in most places in the world. Not too long ago, maybe a year ago or something like that. I was speaking to the the G20 in um, Argentina And we had a large group of people from all over the world talking about climate change, extreme weather events. And certainly, disproportionately, the conversations drifted to flood risk mitigation as being problematic for so many countries around the world.
2: And as we mentioned, recent assessment reports by globally authoritative scientific organizations have highlighted how these impacts of flooding on humans is becoming more common and more costly. Can you speak to what is driving this trend?
0: Yeah, I'm going to focus on Canada right now. But quite frankly, the trends we see in Canada are happening all around the world or or many places in the world. So what is the manifestation of the the costs of flooding look like in Canada? And probably the best way to document these costs is by referring to the catastrophic loss insurable claims data. And in insurance terms, a catastrophic event is any event like a flood, fire, hailstorm, windstorm, whatever it might be. If it triggers more than $25 million in claims, that's classed as a catastrophic event. And then we have groups like one called CatIQ, who works with the Insurance Bureau of Canada. They add up all these numbers that were paid out in insurance claims on an annual basis and, and plot them out on a histogram. And what we find is that in Canada from 1983 up to 2008, the insurance industry could count on paying out between about 250 to $450 million per year in catastrophic insurable claims. Uh, A little bit of variance in the system, but on average, that's where they were. But things started to change on or about 2009 forward. The catastrophic loss insurable claims went over a billion dollars per year, every year for 11 out of the last 12 years for an average cost of $1.8 billion. And by the way, the numbers I've just given you for 2008 earlier versus 2009 forward, all these numbers have been corrected for inflation and for per capita wealth accumulation. And for the 2009 number onward, where we see an average cost of flooding per year of about now about $1.8 billion, more than 50% of that increase, closer to 60%, is due to too much water in the wrong place, flooding. And in particular, residential basement flooding. Residential basement flooding, Flooding homes, basements flooding, that's the number one cost in Canada by far due to climate change and expression of, of extreme weather risk. And it's at the point where now, for example, over the last five or six years in Canada, home insurance premiums have increased by about five to 15%. 60% of that increase due to, to water basement uh, flooding. The cap rates, the amount of coverage that the insurers are willing to, to, in many cases, are willing to offer, depending on location, for flood damage in a basement, the limit up to which they will cover, is much more entering into the zone of ten dollars to $20,000 maximum than a higher number as would have occurred previously. That is problematic because the average cost of a, a weather-induced flooded basement in Canada is $43,000. So if you had a home that had the average cost of basement flood, let's say $43,000, and you had 10 or $20,000 of insurance cap coverage for that water damage, that would very rapidly lead that individual to be on the hook for paying out, let's say 30, 000, 40, $50,000 in the drop of a, a hat of money they'd have to add to the pile to remedy their, their basement, which by the way, is non-negotiable. Because if you have a a flooded basement on a Monday morning, you have to solve the problem by Wednesday of that week or the house is uninhabitable. Because very often we're talking about sewer water in a basement, like this is really nasty stuff. In many locations, the risk of flooding is now so high that it's difficult, if not impossible in cases, to get insurance coverage for your house. And then just going more broadly, the numbers I just gave you were for the catastrophic loss insurable claims. But it's not like the risk is only applicable to the insurance industry. I reference that because that's the, the industry sector for which we have data. But think of the escalating, the upward bend in the, in the curve of catastrophic loss insurable claims as being a metaphor for risk that's in the system for Canada due to climate change and extreme weather risk. Every one of the industry sectors out there today is being hit hard by climate change and extreme weather risk, and particularly flooding very often when it occurs that, amongst other points, disrupts supply chains. So this is real stuff that's
2: increasingly challenging, and the challenge is on an upward bend in the curve. And that trend of loss in the system, it sounds like extends beyond Canada's borders and is of material relevance to many countries around the world.
0: Absolutely. If you look at data from Swiss Re or Munich Re, for example, the two largest global reinsurers, and you look at the monies paid out by them as over pretty much the 1980s onward, you see a sharp upward bend in the curve of real money being paid out, not an artifact of inflation.
2: And so it sounds like when we're talking about the cost of flooding and looking at insurance totals that... You no, know, this is kind of just the tip of the iceberg in terms of the overall volume of the cost that's experienced as a result of flooding damage.
0: That is correct. Very often in the media, for example, you'll hear the expression the new normal in the weather. This is not correct. There will be no new normal. There will be evolving risk. We're not going backwards on climate change. Climate change has happened, is happening, and will continue to happen. And the severity of, of events will be increasingly challenging going forward. And by the way, this isn't my cavalier opinion, as you mentioned at the outset, the IPCC, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, and in Canada, for example, in 2019, we had Canada's Changing Climate Report 2019 authored by about 10 climate scientists from Environment Canada. In both of those reports, they make the point that a climate change is now effectively irreversible. We can work to slow down the rate of change, which we should do. And I'm a big fan of by mitigating greenhouse gas emissions. But overall, we're not going backwards on climate change. And the severity of weather will get more severe going forward. The bigger storms are yet to come. And there's absolutely no reason why in Canada, we will not see events such as we recently witnessed in Germany, France, Belgium, China, East Coast of the United States, extreme, extreme flood events, absolutely those could come to
2: Canada. They will come to Canada. It's just a matter of when. So we've clearly discussed that increasing precipitation is one of the primary causal factors of flood risk. Are there any other elements that factor into that equation? Yeah. So an excellent question.
0: So in addition to more water coming down over shorter periods of time, that's not the only thing that's contributing to flood risk in in this country, in Canada. For example, over the period of the last 100 years or so, across the southern region of the uh, provinces, right across the country, we've lost more or less about 60 to 80% of natural infrastructure that was originally here. Forests, fields, wetlands. a, a, A place that when big storms occur, the water can sit on the landscape and slowly discharge downstream or into the groundwater system. It's either been paved over or turned into some form of agricultural development which on average, when water hits pavement or agricultural development, it uh, does not stay on the landscape very long. It fo- flows off quickly to the lowest point around. And you know, ultimately that might be someone's basement. In Southern Ontario, for example, I happen to have the, the number right at my fingertips. It's, we've lost about 73% of the natural infrastructure that was here originally in Southern Ontario is, is, is now gone. Also, we have aging municipal infrastructure. We have aging housing infrastructure. And with just more and more people, depending on places to live, very often we're stretching the limits and building in areas that are prone to, to flood risk or we're building on floodplains that we should not be doing. So it's a combination of a plethora of factors that really contributes ultimately to the escalating flood risk we see
2: in the country. And beyond the financial costs associated with, with all of this flooding risk, what other elements of our socioeconomic systems are negatively impacted by flooding? Yeah, so flood risk, we tend to think of flood
0: risk as, as a problem for the, the property and casualty insurance sector and, and the financial costs associated with flooding, as we've been uh, discussing. But also, the psychosocial or the mental stress costs associated with flooding are very meaningful. For example, our group, meaning the, the intact Centre, a couple of years ago, we went to Burlington, Ontario in 2017. And we followed up to see if the residents in Burlington, three years after experiencing a major flood, how stressful do they find it every time there's a major precipitation event? The 2014 flood in Burlington, that was about 3,300 homes flooded out. They had experienced about 190 millimeters of rain over a six or eight hour period. So a real deluge that resulted in this, this, this flood phenomena, which by the way, ended up flooding also the mayor's house who had lived there for 30 years and never seen a drop of water in his basement. And all of a sudden he had five and a half feet of water in the basement. So this was a major stressful event. So we went back to Burlington three years after that flood had occurred. And we pulled people in the community, literally going door to door with a survey and said with a bunch of questions that more or less amounted to, how much stress do you feel every time there's a major precipitation event? And we went on to streets where flooding was prominent and where people experienced basement flooding and then other streets nearby where they weren't flooded. They didn't have a, a flooded basement or and so forth. So an experimental group and a control group, if you will. And what we found is that for people who had been flooded, on a scale of 0 to 5, 5 being the worst for stress, 48% of people polled ranked themselves as a 4.5 to 5 out of 5 every time there's a major precipitation event or a major storm occurs. And what was notable here was that this wasn't three weeks later or three months later. This was three years later. This is now how these people live. They live under stressful conditions permanently every time there's a major precipitation event, which quite frankly is, is, is a horrible way to live. The survey people, the people conducting the survey, were being invited almost into every home that they went to that had experienced flooding and down into the basements. And people wanted to show them where the, where the water went. And then they showed them on their computer pictures of what the flood damage looked like. So the stress is astronomically high that people live with. And to the point that the next step in the equation now is to monitor to see whether or not in the aftermath of events such as a flood or fires that occur in other parts of the country, do we see elevations in medications to deal with mental health stress, which puts the the onus on the the life and health insurers. And also we found in Burlington for the average home that had experienced basement flooding, that individual, the average individual lost 7.1 days from work to put the house back into working order. And that's a claim again for the life and health insurers. And by the way, before we did this study, the major life and health insurers thought that, well, climate change, extreme weather risk, flooding, residential basement flooding, that has nothing to do with us. Well, now they found out it has a lot to do with them through mental health stress, potential escalations in medications to deal with mental health stress,
2: counseling services and lost time from work claims. Well, that absolutely underscores an appreciable mental health aspect to the flooding risk conversation, which is an important part of the equation that needs to be considered. Financial markets pull forward future risk. And so as clarity grows around these socioeconomic impacts of flooding that we've been discussing, how might that impact things such as home prices or insurance availability or the cost of capital?
0: Well, the manifestation of flood risk relative to the financial services sector is is material. We've said a little bit already about property and casualty insurance having to raise on average, it's uh, home insurance premiums by five to 15% to accommodate elevated basement flood risk. Also the property and casualty insurers increasingly, so we're finding that there may be parts of the country, literally in bits and pieces from towns and cities from Halifax to Victoria, that homes may not be insurable and they have to walk away from, which is not a situation the property and casualty insurers want to be in the business of walking away. That's a little bit like saying that McDonald's is not gonna sell you know, hamburgers. Their business is to provide insurance coverage. In terms of the residential real estate market, we are about to release a report very shortly where we've done a detailed examination of the impact of flooding, catastrophic flooding in communities on, amongst other points, home price. And what we have found is that if you look at a period of the average price of homes six months before a flood, versus six months after a flood. What is the change in the price of homes that sold for? And we've compared that to nearby communities that weren't flooded as a control group and looked at the difference in the price of housing for six months pre versus post flooding in a non-flooded community. And it's literally the differential between those two that gives you the attribution of the impact of flooding on house price. And what we found is that when we isolate, as I've just described, for the effects of flooding, the hit on housing price is minus 7.5%. A 7.5% reduction in house price for at least up to six months after a flood. We didn't go beyond that period of time, but that would be the next step in the equation. We were first advised by real estate agents to say, look, if there is an impact here, it should probably show up within a six month period. And indeed, when we did the examination, that's what we found. We also found, that post flooding in flooded communities, that there's a 38% reduction in the number of listings, number of homes listed on the market. In other, pe- in other words, people would like to list, but they don't. And it's prob- that's probably attributable to the fact that they're putting their house back into working order amongst other points after a flood before listing it for sale, or they're, they're waiting for the memory of the flood perhaps to to drop away in people's minds. And we also found that homes in flooded communities sit on the market for 20% longer. So there is a material hit to the residential housing market as a result of uh, flooding.
2: Thanks, Blair. So we've talked a little bit so far about how the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change's recent report found that due to historic and current greenhouse gas emissions, a certain amount of climate change is locked in. You know That is to say it's irreversible on the timescale of centuries to come. And this really highlights the need for adaptation measures to be taken to minimize f- exposure to flooding risk. And what does flood adaptation look like? And really how prepared are we to manage this risk?
0: Well, in Canada, I'm gonna say the we is Canada. We've got a bit of a good news, bad news story here. The good news is that for Canada, We have a very good idea of where various aspects of climate change extreme weather risk, where and to what degree they will manifest themselves going forward. And this is in fairly detailed work developed by and presented by Environment Climate Change Canada in its 2019 report, Canada's Changing Climate Report. For flooding, the general rule is that in central to eastern Canada, we will see an increase in precipitation events on the order of about 20%, so higher potential for flooding. So the, the good news is we certainly have enough detail in the country as to what the manifestation of climate change and extreme weather risk will look like going forward that we can prepare for it. That's number one. Number two is that in Canada... We have not been just sitting on our hands for the last five or six or more years in reference to preparing for climate change extreme weather risk and knowing what to do. We have developed very good guidance in Canada as to what we need to do through guidelines and standards to mitigate flood risk at a variety of levels. We know exactly what to do at the level of the house Around the outside of the property and in the basement itself, the individual house, we know we have a very good idea of what to do to very much lower the probability that when a big storm occurs, that house will end up with a flooded basement. For new residential community design, we have very good guidance on how to build new residential communities going forward, such that when the big storms hit, they don't all flood out, which by the way, starts with don't build on a floodplain we have good guidance on what to do for existing communities to identify areas within communities that have a higher probability of realizing flooding. And then in those areas, we can direct water to safe locations to keep people and infrastructure out of harm's way. For commercial real estate, we know what to do to lower the probability that of A, underground parking lots for commercial real estate will fill up with water, and or if flooding occurs in the underground areas of basements of commercial real estate buildings and condo towers, et cetera. What measures can we take to to mitigate the damage that would occur? And then shortly for Canada, and shortly means in the fall of 2021, we will release a new standard for Canada for coastline resiliency to make it such that when we have a combination of storm surge, king tides, and sea level rise... All occurring together, by the way, at time, what do we do to minimize the, the risk associated with those events? The only area for which we don't have a good guideline right now that will be developed and if I had to guess, I would say within two years, is a shoreline resiliency standard for the Great Lakes. And then additionally, we're doing quite a bit work of work in the country right now, and there's a lot of we's involved in this, federal, provincial, municipal governments and NGOs and academics and so forth working together to look at retaining and restoring natural infrastructure across the country to help mitigate flood risk. And by the way, we're also looking within the context of natural infrastructure at the concomitant benefits. The not so good news is that we're not deploying solutions nearly fast enough to keep up with the the rate at which the, the stress is evolving. So stress is going up on a very steep curve relative to flood risk. Our inclination to keep up using the tools we know that works are on a much lesser line, sloped line. And the dispersion between these two lines is increasing over time. So we've got to bring those together. We have to deploy measures for adaptation rapidly, adapting to climate change and extreme weather risk. That's sort of been the distant cousin that nobody talks about. However, in the last... 18 months to two years, with floods, fires, extreme heat manifesting itself all over the world in a very major, profound way, and including in Canada, we are now realizing that, yes, we have to embrace adaptation in equal measure with mitigating greenhouse gas emissions as our co-directives on, to address climate change. And indeed, I would argue there's even a third part to that equation, which is carbon capture and sequestration. How do we actually get carbon out of the atmosphere? This is a a very much a necessary step. So I think we need to think about climate change as a three-legged stool. And if we fail on any one of the legs, we fail totally. It's mitigating greenhouse gas emissions, adapting to climate change and extreme weather
2: risk, and focusing on carbon capture and sequestration. Thanks Blair. So just to unpack that a little bit more, What are some of the challenges faced in mitigating exposure to flood risk? And is there one core limitation that's inhibiting our capacity to move forward? The biggest
0: limitation that we're realizing is self-imposed or self-induced. And it is lack of a sense of appreciation for the need to act with urgency to mitigate flood risk in the country. It's almost antithetical to common sense when you've grown up in a world where there's been relatively stable climate. But people have to realize that no, we have actually changed the chemistry of the atmosphere. And as a result of changing the chemistry of the atmosphere, the manifestation of weather has also changed. And it's changed in a direction that that is for the worse, that is more challenging, for which the infrastructure we have built the way it is in the locations it is, is not adapted to the new weather regime that we're realizing. And therefore we have to move with great urgency to build adaptation into the new system that to to address the extreme weather that's not just on the ground today, but that which we should anticipate for the future. So in other words, even if you are building a building today somewhere, and you said, I wanna look at the floodplain maps. So that's a good thing to do. However, with climate change, not only do you have to think about the weather today and its potential to affect flooding in the location where you wanna build that building, you have to forward project to 25 to 50 to perhaps 75 years down the road, because when we build infrastructure today, large infrastructure, let's say a building, it has effectively zero capital stock turnover in human terms. It's it's not like your cell phone that's gone in two years and you replace it with something else. When you build this stuff, you got to make sure that you build with the future in mind, and that's the new reality of thinking that we have to embrace to address climate change and extreme weather risk to, to mitigate those
2: two risks that otherwise we, we build at our apparel. That's an important point to highlight as the shifting predictability in weather patterns certainly has material impacts to our supply chains, ways of doing business, healthcare systems and so on, as these have all been designed to function optimally within a predictable range of weather patterns. And we're seeing fundamental shifts in those patterns, which are unprecedented in our lifetime.
0: Absolutely. And by the way, even when you're dealing with sectors of the economy that that have dealt that deal with the weather on a regular basis and have so for 100 years, very often you'll see people within those sectors make statements along the lines of we know what extreme weather looks like and, and we're prepared for it. and very often, the people's experience in dealing with extreme weather can work against them because they tend to think that we know what it looks like and we can deal with it until all of a sudden they hit something that's unprecedented in terms of impact. And, and that occurs because we literally have changed the, the, the chemistry of the atmosphere.
2: And given these challenges that you've been discussing, if you had to make one recommendation to the financial sector on the topic of managing flood risk, what would it be?
0: Well, I would break it down a little bit. For example, if we were talking to institutional investors, for example, one thing every, in my opinion, at least, every institutional investor should be able to do right, right now with TCFD, they have a sort of a heightened awareness around transition risk, you know, and, and, the, and the, the companies they invest in, the issuers they invest in, what are they doing to deal with their carbon footprint? And are they going to have to get off carbon? And So on an industry-specific basis, the institutional investor should be identifying Per industry sector, what are the climate change perils that are the most problematic that could have a negative impact on the company I'm investing in? And then under each one of those perils, whether it's flood or fire or wind, whatever it might be, are there one or two factors that stand out as being the most problematic, that this is something that could really go wrong here, that could really affect my investment? And when they're meeting with issuers, they should ask the issuers about what are you doing to address this point? And to not do so means you're investing blindly. Let's say in other areas, of the mortgage market. One of the things that mortgage providers or lenders could bring to the equation is that when they're giving someone, holding a mortgage for someone, at the time of close, and by the way, on a, a, on a repeated basis, on an annual basis, they should give the homeowner guidance on fundamental measures that p- can be engaged around the outside of the property and the basement itself to lower the property probability that that home will end up with a flooded basement. So those are just two examples of of where this stuff can enter into the capital markets, climate change, extreme
2: weather risk. Thanks, Blair. You've offered a lot of recommendations in our discussion so far. Are there any other practical next steps to minimize exposure to flood risk?
0: Well, it's really, we have to look at climate change and extreme weather risk as a whole of society endeavor or, or problem to solve. It's not just a problem for government, you know, federal, provincial, municipal. We've also got to think about how business should be part of the equation of the solution, how academe should be part of the equation of the solution. The one area where I think we could also glean greater expertise that has been realized to date are industry associations. I think every single industry, major industry association should be stepping up on behalf of their membership to help them to identify how particular climate perils may be problematic to their industry sector, and then within the context of those perils, what specifically are the challenges and what solutions could be in place to address
2: those challenges. Well, it certainly sounds like there's a role for everyone to play from all levels of government through to business and down to individuals. And additionally,
0: I would like to draw attention to the fact that recently, The federal government of Canada announced the launch of the Climate Adaptation Home Rating Program, and this is a program that will complement what is currently out there as the EnerGuide Program, whereby through support from the federal government, an evaluation can be made of individual homes as to their energy efficiency or areas that could benefit from improvement in terms of energy efficiency. Now, with this recent announcement by the federal government, we will be combining home flood risk evaluation to the inner guide evaluation that a homeowner may receive all in one stop shopping. And I believe this is a
2: a major step forward for the country. Thank you, Blair, for joining me to share your expertise on the drivers and challenges associated with flooding and importantly, the practical actions that can be taken to build resiliency in our socioeconomic systems and minimize exposure to flood risk. Well, thank you very much, and I certainly appreciate
0: the attention you're you're bringing to to the adaptation um, file. So, thank
2: you very much. And thank you to our listeners. Stay tuned to learn more about how climate change intersects our social and financial systems as I continue this series of episodes offering a deep dive into topics including permafrost thaw, wildfire, extreme heat, and more.
1: Thanks for listening to Sustainability Leaders. This podcast is presented by BMO Financial Group. To access all the resources we discussed in today's episode and to see our other podcasts, visit us at bmo.com forward slash sustainability leaders. You can listen and subscribe free to our show on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. And we'll greatly appreciate a rating and review and any feedback that you might have. Our show and resources are produced with support from BMO's marketing team and Puddle Creative. Until next time, I'm Michael Torrance. Have a great week.